Okay, so I'm back for part two of the Tamir Moscovich episode of the Bucket Seat Podcast. I hope you enjoyed getting to know a little bit about Tamir's amazing 911s and 914. In this part of the episode, I get deeper into Urban Outlaw with Tamir. We talk about how the film was born, what it took to make, and how Magnus Walker first reacted to it. First came Between the Walls. It was an early Honda indie project from Tamir, and without it, I'm not certain we'd have Urban Outlaw or Kaz. Tamir's feature-length documentary on the creator of Gran Turismo, the fascinating Kazanori. From there came Ayrton's Wish, a number of Porsche commercials and short films for both the U.S. and Germany directly. And if you're sensing a theme to this, you're on point. The chain reaction that occurred from Tamir's brave first move from producer to director with making Honda's Between the Walls was just the beginning to his very successful run of filmmaking. So sit back and enjoy. I'm Trevor Byrne, and this is part two of the Bucket Seat Podcast. And it opened to a magazine which was Total 9-11 and there was an article on Magnus Walker in the magazine and it was just kind of like a photo essay with a couple of lines of dialogue but enough information there that you got a sense of it. And I looked at it and I was like, that's the alchemy. I'm going to make a film about this guy. And it just, that was the thought. And then I went online, I did some research within like 15 minutes found his direct contact, went through his garage, went through the location because his location space was a rental space for film production, so it was easy to find. And he was very open online. And I was like, okay. I called Paul back up. And I'm like, dude, drop everything. I need you to go look at this stuff. And I sent him a bunch of links. He looked and goes, what is it? And I go, it's the next film we're making. He's like, dude, you're not even coming into the edit suite <laughs> wow. to look at this one. I'm like, oh, that's so cool. We're making this film. And then I called okay. my EP, Marnie, who's with me now at Spy, but at the time we were at Industry, I was like, if I go do this film, will you back me on it? She's like, sure, we'll help you make it, whatever you need, right? Because she was always supporting the career. And then I went to my wife, who was upstairs at the time, and I was like, hey, honey, I kind of want to make this film. She's like, well, it's your company. You got money in the bank. Do what you need to do. Like, I trust you. I'm like, great. So ran back downstairs, and I was like, I got to put a director's treatment together. I can't so, believe this is how it came together. Yeah, so I, I spent an hour and I put a full photo essay director's treatment. And then keep in mind, I had shot on a lot of those roads. So I knew where I wanted to shoot in L.A. Mm -hmm. And I had seen all the location space in his studio because it was rental available. So I knew the location. Like, I didn't have to scout it. And then, and on top of it, he's a location guy too, right? Right. And then his garage was online on Pelican Parts available for everyone to see. So I was like, I'm, and I had the talent and I had the cars. I didn't, right? I was like, oh, it was the perfect alchemy. And the thing that attracted me to it was like, that's a dude I want to sit with and have a beer and talk about cars with. I'm not as much as Len around the corner, super nice dude, and I love him as an uncle. <laughs> the silver-haired, mustachio fox that, you know, is 30 years my senior, who's telling me about the glory days mm -hmm. of the automotive world, mm -hmm. isn't the guy I want to sit down with because I want to sit with someone who's my contemporary mm -hmm. hanging out doing shit and you know like yeah. and making some pretty fucking cool stuff too making some pretty cool stuff so I, and so in my mind I was like this is a counterpoint like I can turn the whole thing on its head and it'll get some attention so the the ultimate goal was to shoot a three minute piece 
Because I was just like, branded content and branded entertainment was at the forefront. And mm -hmm. I knew that mm -hmm. three to seven minutes was the timeline. Yeah. I just wanted to do a tight three-minute piece. Yeah. And that was it. So I contacted Magnus, sent him body of work in a reel. Yeah. He like the Honda film, some tattoo pieces, some other stuff that was, you know, in that realm and the treatment and said, I don't want any money. I just want four days of your life. And I just want to shoot this piece. You can have it in the end, but it's just a real piece for me. Are you cool? He kind of went away for a couple days because it was just email. He later told me he spoke with his wife, Karen. They kind of went through it, watched some of the films. And he called me back and he was like, listen, dude, I'm in Hollywood. People are always asking me to do this, but I don't like the Hollywood vibe. I'm digging your vibe. <laughs> and it sounds like, like you're channeling him right now. Right. And I'm liking your, your work. Yeah. So how, could, how bad could it be? Come down on this date, which was literally a month away. And I was like, perfect. And then it was just a full scramble to get local line producer to fly down with me mm -hmm. and all the while it was like okay if we start shooting it goes sideways and we cut it you lose x amount of money if we get the whole thing shot and it's a bag of shit you lose x amount of money if you go all the way to the finish line right you so lose x like, times two right so it was like you yeah. know i was looking at it going okay well you know that's how bad it could be you know some flights you know, we flew down on points we did hotel.com we stayed at awesome right like it yeah. was like full gorilla filmmaking and the first time i met magnus was on the first day of shooting at 6 30 in the morning at his studio we didn't do a pre-meet prior it was just like yeah, we went no right into it just ready to go yeah it was just like we were making a film and i had it all storyboarded out i had it all mapped out the cinematographer anthony arnett was someone i was a fan of i'd seen mm. this documentary three minute piece he did on that motorcycle designer I can find the name for it, but it was Japanese dude making crazy motorcycles. Right, right. No, exactly was, who you're talking about. Yeah. And, you, and you and he, sorry, he, he's the DOP, so right? He was the DOP on that. And he's been and, with you on a couple of other films Yeah, we've since, done a right? lot of films since, yeah. but yeah. he caught my eye. And I contacted him through his agent, who I use a lot of the DPs at the agent, and Anthony said yes. And so we just kind of went in with favored nations that he would get paid the same as all his crew. And they would all get paid for their time on the shoot. And we just paid them out. Cool. And then I worked for free. Magnus did his thing for free. But the crew got paid. And it was favorite nations. Everybody was equal from the PA to the DP. That's fucking awesome. We just went in. Because yeah. I was like, I'm not going to. They're going to benefit zero from the film. Uh-huh. So if they don't get paid yep. for their time, yeah. Yeah. it's not cool. Why am I asking them for a favor? They're actually doing me a favor by making the film with me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we went down. And then we shot for four days. And as we were shooting, I was calling Paul going, dude, we're making a bigger film than three minutes. Because Magnus wouldn't stop talking, pretty much like <laughs> I'm doing now. Yeah. And, you know, the first two days, I just grinded him. It was just interview, interview, interview. And he was just like, I want to drive. I want to drive. I thought we were making a driving movie. And I'm like, I need the content, man. I need the content. And we fully, at one point in the middle of the night on the side of the street, had a blowout where he was like, dude, I want to drive. I'm like, you have to trust me. This is going to work out. And then we ended up doing two days of driving and I went away and that was it. It was done. Mm -hmm. And I, it was zero radio contact with him afterwards. Right. You're like, Paul, let's do this. Right. And then <laughs> when, when I say, Paul, let's do this, it was, hey, Paul, I'm going to go shoot a Bud Light commercial in Uruguay, <laughs> and then I'm going to go do a Bud Lime commercial <laughs> right. in Buenos Aires, yeah. and then i got to go to Chile, 
but you're going to fucking cut the shit out of this. It's going to be great. And at first he was like, we're doing a three minute thing, dude. We don't have time and money and budget to do this. But once he went down the rabbit hole, he was sending me like five to 10 minute sequences. I'm like, oh, this is amazing. Keep going. Yeah. And so by the time I got back from these jobs, two months later, we had assembled the whole thing. We're looking at it and we're like, this is, there's something here. And we kind of knew that you, me, him, it was like fish to allure, shiny cars and lots of noise. Like it didn't matter. We needed to find people who had no interest in cars. And, you know, whether they were women or guys, but just, and they were in our case, primarily women had zero interest in cars. Cause mm -hmm. for mm -hmm. Paul and I, we were like, if we can transcend car culture and tell a story about a guy who's just passionate and kind of this almost lifestyle guru of like, right. just do your own it, shit. It could have been anything. Absolutely been anything. anything. I am right. so with you on that. Yeah. Then we had something. And what would end up happening is that the guys who, or guys and girls, but mm -hmm. the people who are interested in the film because of the cars would be like, oh, wow, there's depth to it. And the people who were interested in the depth would be like, oh, I get the cars now. Mm -hmm. And that started to happen. And we were like, oh, this is great. So much so that a woman, Kate, who was an exec producer at the edit house that Paul was at, after watching the finished film, quit her job and moved out into the country, into Prince Edward County, and is now doing like designer wallpaper and Come living out there with on. her husband. I was like, no, he's living his life. That's what am I doing? magic. Right, and we were like, okay, we're in. Like, this is it. Yeah, yeah. And five years later, I'm still talking about the film. I just went yeah. to New York to do a thing. We're talking about the film. And, and it, it inspired me so much that, no joke, my son sleeping upstairs is named Magnus today. And, and this is no stretch in even the slightest bit. That, 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 that film was such an inspiration, and I found it so inspiring. Uh, I mean, not to mention, you know, Magnus has a very cool character and a very cool name. It, it certainly had a pretty big influence on that little guy up there actually being named what he is today. So it, it, I think it's had a really powerful impact on a lot of people. Yeah, and I mean, it's very flattering and it's crazy because as a filmmaker and a commercial director and someone who works in the arts, you're kind of just in your vacuum. You put your head down, you work <laughs> hard, and you're just trying to do your shit, pay your bills, support your family, and do what you love, right? I wake mm -hmm. up Monday morning and I do what I love. And <laughs> You know, I still got to pedal the bicycle. It's not J.J. Abrams territory. I haven't just won Academy Award for <laughs> yeah. Moonlight or for director for La La Land. Like, yeah. I got to pedal the bike or it uh -huh. falls over. Bills uh -huh. to pay. But it doesn't mean I'm not grateful to have a couple of nice toys in the driveway and an awesome life. Like, I understand right. the benefits of what I've achieved mm -hmm. and the impact the film's had. But, you know, one of the crazy things about the film was... So we finished this 30 minute film and we we're like, okay, well, we still have to cut that three minute piece, which was the whole point of this exercise because we wanted to show that you could do this interesting branded content and create emotion. So we cut what became the trailer and we sat down and we said, okay, well, what are we going to do with this? We could just put it out into the ether or we could kind of explore the branded content side of it. Called up Lawrence Yap, who at the time was the head of marketing for Porsche. Yes. Prior to that, he had spent a career as a journalist, and he knew a lot of the same people I knew from the same kind of uh, bouncing board into our desired career path. He was an IT guy at an advertising agency named Grip that had Honda and Acura, <laughs> and they launched him and said, dude, follow your path, go do journalism, photography, and all the rest, and he did it. 
and full circle, he ends up head of marketing at Porsche. <laughs> I was like rip producing commercials for them going, no, I need, I have a voice and I want to say my two cents on this style. And they supported me like the Honda feature or 30 minute, 45 minute doc that we did about the indie racing. Yeah. I pitched to them. I went to Dave Crichton at Grip and I was like, <laughs> we should make a film about this. <laughs> and he was like, well, we don't have money for it. I'm like, just give me the bare minimum. Like, let me just go do it and give me the access. And they gave us unprecedented access and we just did it. Cause again, I was pursuing this branded content kind of idea of like, tell these stories and they got behind and they supported it. And that led to that Honda experience actually led to urban outlaw. So grip was and Crichton and Bob Goulard and all those guys, they were the precipice for going, no, pursue it, dude, run after it as they did for Lawrence. So I contacted Lawrence and I was like, dude, I got this crazy project. I think you'd be into it. Come down to the edits. We check it out. And that's all we said. And he's like, yeah, I love creative shit. And he came down <laughs> and we sat him down and we played him the three minute trailer. And he was like, this is fucking amazing. And we're like, okay, wait, now watch the 30 minute film. And he's like, this is amazing. What, what do you guys want to do with it? And we're like, well, we want Porsche to get behind it. Like we want it to be branded content for Porsche. Mm-hmm. Like we were, we didn't want the money. We didn't want anything. We just thought Porsche's got 5 million fans on Facebook at the time, X amount on YouTube. Yeah. We just want Porsche to embrace it and release it as branded content. That would be the victory for us. So he goes, you know what? I put it on a DVD for me. I actually have a meeting in Germany. Yeah, right. Gosh, really? right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so yeah. he goes to Germany. Okay. They have an internal meeting and then he comes back and he's like, listen, guys, they loved it. They thought it was interesting, but he's not using OEM dealer parts and uh, they're afraid that they're dealers. I was waiting for this. Yeah. Right. And we are like, okay, we've been down that path. And we're like, well, what does that mean? He goes, you've got carte blanche to put the film out there without copyright um, infringement, infringement yeah. on the shape design in the car, which we were like, well, that's a huge like we're now we're not flying under the radar. He's good, but don't put Porsche's name on it. You'll have more success with that. And we're like, why? He goes, because it'll be an independent film, but you have carte blanche to go out, do this. Porsche will not slap you on the wrist or give you a cease and desist. We're like, okay, which we'll is do huge. It. Coming from you know that Red Urban, you know, we still had uh, nine, the, the whole story of the Porsche brand when I when I came on. Interestingly enough, the two two manufacturers with boxer engines, but. Um, I, I know kind of the background behind all of that and how difficult that can be. So that's, that's, that was huge. Fucking crazy. Right. So we're like, okay, fine. And so we released, we obviously sent it to Magnus. Magnus watched like, and then that was heart wrenching because we sent it to him. We didn't hear from him for five days. Oh my God. You must've been terrified. Well, we were just like, now what? Yeah. I had made sure I had the paperwork signed that it was like, <laughs> I owned all the rights and it didn't matter, but <laughs> right. It was kind of one of those things where we wanted his blessing. So five days later, he gets back to us. He goes, did you know I watched the film? Didn't really like it. No. And then I watched it again. And I was like, hmm. And my, watch, my wife watched it with me, Karen. And mm-hmm. she was like, this is amazing. And again, it's because Karen wasn't about the cars. She saw the lifestyle. The construct that we created. We, mm-hmm. She saw basically, you know, Paul and I had collaborated on a lot of films and we then since then had continued to, but our whole thing was how do you whittle it down to the essence of the person, the essence of their passion, the essence of what we're doing. And we took, 
that, and we filtered Magnus down to what was a construct. It was the essence of him. Is he sitting on his couch with his feet up and a cup of tea watching TV on a Sunday afternoon like you? Yeah. yeah. He's not a rock star. He's mm -hmm. just a guy who has a vision of these cars and a passion and does all the rest. But we filtered it down to this essence. And that essence became something that was, you want to call it heroic or leading man in the traditional sense of a film. That's what it was. And she got it. And after multiple views in that week, he got it. He came back. He's like, I didn't like it at first. It took me a while to understand it because I wanted the driving. But then when I got it, it was in the soul. Yeah. And I was like, okay, cool. So we launched a three-minute trailer in June. And unbeknownst to us, a journalist on the Top Gear website team picked it up. And it had 150,000 views overnight. And then that yeah. led to yeah. millions of views to the trailer, and it went viral. Yeah, uh, I was after I saw the trailer, I was like, "Good God, I need to see this fucking film. This is crazy." And I had no clue who you guys were, where right. you're from, or anything about you guys in general. So that yeah. was like the the build up to it. And the key for us, because Maggie was like, "Well, how are we going to do it?" And the key for Paul and I was. There was a film that had just come out called Press Pause Play, and it was all about the democratization of art and how the internet is changing music, film, this, that, the other. And we were like, well, we only wanted to make a three-minute trailer. It's my money. I'm never going to make my money back, so mm -hmm. fuck it. Mm -hmm. Let's follow that path and go. If we put it out into the ether, the ROI doesn't have to necessarily be cash. Right, from that film. Yeah, what will the ROI be? Right. Because it's, that film was released for free. From it was home. totally released for free. Yeah. yeah, we put up a little like, hey, donate, and we made like three, $4,000, which is great. It was generous. Mm -hmm. But we were looking at it going, okay, if 2 million people watch it, and then the film goes out and you know a million people watch that, and you make $3,000 in donations off of it, that's a shit business model, right? But we were looking and studying and trying yeah. to understand what yeah. is this new era that we're in mm -hmm. with the web, with content, with streaming and all that stuff. So for us, it was like, let's just put it out there. And so we put the trailer out there and created all this hype. And then Porsche came back and said, you know what? We'd like to host the film trailer and the film on our website as part of the YouTube content. We're like, great. And they're like, we're not putting right. a name on it, but yeah. we want it. And so the key was, then you need to announce the release date of the film being October 15, 2012, because you have the channels to do so. Mm -hmm. So we used Porsche to do it. They did it. And then we released it online and everything else was kind of history. And the reactions were what they were. And we got a lot of positive reactions. And we had submitted it into Raindance Film Festival. And it screened there theatrically and a whole bunch of other film festivals. It won the awards and it won a Black Camera Award at the Frankfurt Film Festival around automotive. Wow. And so it had all this like... Was it... Sorry. Was that also at the same time... Uh, was it the first year the Jalopnik Film Festival as well that it went? Did it go in, or was that the year after? I can't Jalopnik remember, I was the year after. Okay, you're, and then you went to judge and sit on that. Panel yeah, I sat on that, that too. panel. Right. Okay. And it was in it, but it was not in competition. It was just at Jalopnik okay, as gotcha, like, gotcha, yeah. hey, here, here's a bunch of work. Go ahead, do <laughs> it. And they're like, cool, awesome. Yeah. 
And it was flattering for Jalopnik to, you know, call me out and invite me down. And, you know, the peers in which they were putting me on the same level with was like, oh, this is great. So we put it out there, we put it into the ether and the return on investment, as crazy it may be, was that if you look at it from Urban Outlaw stemmed from the Honda film. Mm -hmm. And again, the Honda film had no money, but it was just like proving an idea. Urban Outlaw was an extension of, okay, now if you remove client and you just work purely on storytelling, <laughs> right. what happens? Yeah, yeah. And then from there, you know, there was a lot of correspondence, a lot of emails, a lot of fan mail. And we weren't hiding who we were because we were just like, it's available out there. You can reach us at, you know, you know 1-800-GHOSTBUSTERS. Call us up. Great. And then I got an email from a gentleman, Mike, the name of Ken Chan. It was just a one-line email going, hey, I got a project maybe you'd be interested in. You know, it's about doing a film. And I, over the years, learned very quickly that the one-line note was the most important email you'd get. The six-and-a-half-page love letter was all bullshit. Mm -hmm. It was them releasing how they felt, but there was never any money or real right. conceptual kind of thing behind it. But that one-line note was a fishing expedition of someone going, are you going to bite? Mm -hmm. Because if you bite, I got something for you. Mm -hmm. So I mm -hmm. went in and looked, and when I clicked on the guy's name in just my email address, because there was no signature, nothing, it said Ken Chan PlayStation. I was going to say, it had to have been from PlayStation. Right and now. I was like, okay, so I emailed him up, and that was the return on investment. He emailed us back and was like, want to do a feature, well, I want to do a film of some kind or a series of films we don't know, and Paul Pro and I put an 80-page treatment together in concept and said, no, you should do a film, yeah. one conceptual thing, rather than interstitial stuff, because you will lose the audience after a while. Right. And so, and this is in the lead up to GT6? Yeah, so basically what happens is he reaches out to us and says, look, I'm in between agency A and agency B. We've fired one. We're hiring another one. Yeah. I have a window of opportunity where I don't have to answer to anyone. And no one's going to take any of the money. I want to make this film. This is the budget I have. What do you want to do? We put forward. They said, great. So 1.5 million, featured documentary, travel the world. Mm -hmm. We all agreed to it. We said yes. And Paul and I were kind of pinching ourselves. We were like, this is it. This is the dream. <laughs> yeah, this, this is the, the real deal. investment. We're not making millions of bucks here. But we're getting paid doing what we love. Mm -hmm. And we're getting to do film. Now... That film, in the end, was a piece we're really proud of. It was a feature-length doc. Yep. It was number one on Hulu in the doc world once it went out. It you know, had its online presence because, again, they gave it out for free as a marketing tool. But you know, we shortlisted in Cannes and entertain, in uh, oh, Branded wow. Entertainment. We won at the London International Awards Show gold for Branded Entertainment. They won. Holy shit. Gold at the marketing awards for the game marketing awards. So from that standpoint, we were like, it had achieved everything we could have wanted it to achieve, and we liked the quality and body of work that it created. And from that, the ultimate, um, I guess, thank you was that they came back to us and said, we want you to shoot Ayrton's Wish, because now they were doing a collaboration First, the film was a celebration of the 15-year anniversary and the launch of GT6. Mm -hmm. Ayrton's Wish was to be the introductory film to let the world know that Ayrton Senna's construct was now going to be in the game. 
and that leading up from go-kart all the way up before F1, you could follow Ayrton's path. And so they, they came back to us and we did this film in Brazil where we shot this doc yeah. on the Ayrton Foundation and, you know, his legacy. That was that, a super emotional film to watch, too. Yeah, and I mean, look, the, the reality was that Senna was a brilliant film. And anybody who says Absolutely. they didn't want to be able to put their name on and say they made that film would be lying through their yeah, teeth. Yeah, I mean, f fantastic. One of my favorites of all time, no questions asked. Right. But as a fan of that film and understanding what we were up against, we had to sit there and say, we're not making that. Yes. That was done. Yeah. And anything to ape that would be an insult. And would look foolish on us. So we had mm -hmm. to say, okay, well, if this is about the foundation, then let's go deep into the foundation and find the kids that are being helped, understand that, you know, he had this amazing career, but 20 years after his career, millions upon millions, like in the 20 million number of kids in Brazil were being helped. It's so crazy. It's yeah. crazy. Yeah. And so to us, it was like, well, then that's the film. That's what we need to do, mm -hmm. and completely respect the the craftsmanship and the filmmaking of other filmmakers who did this great piece, and let them have their space and just do our twenty minute little doc on the foundation. And the you know again the great piece there was that the actual Senna Foundation thanked us personally as filmmakers for what we did, and we were like, well, that that's a home run then. Yeah. Right. And so that just kind of launched the whole thing. And then the other thing that happened during this process was a agency producer whose um, legacy was the BMW films that first came out that first round. This woman by the name of Robin Boardman, she reached out to me and was like, hey, I'm emailing you from Porsche USA, interested in doing commercials for Porsche. And I was like, yeah, sure. And we chatted and we got on. And she has and had the power to present directors, known or unknown, to her creative teams. And they listened because she did all the BMW films back in the day. And worked at White and Kennedy on Nike back in the day. Wow. And so she was a powerhouse. And when yeah. she said to them, you should check out this guy, Tamir, they said, okay. And it allowed me to get up and pitch on it. Well, that pitch then led to basically three spots with them, pitching on some stuff you win, some you lose. But I've done three campaigns with them. That was the Cayman GTS, mm -hmm. the Boxer GTS, the Boxer 718, and the Cayman GTR. <laughs> I mean, GT4, sorry. GT4, okay, right. yeah, yeah. So I was like, just pretty awesome. Not a bad run to go on. No, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, I'm still in relations with Porsche and with that whole team. And so, you know, boards come up, scripts come up, you're available, you're not available. But somehow I fell into that world, which was great. Now, it never stopped me from doing stuff with Ford and stuff with Hyatt. Hyundai and Subaru and other companies along the way. Yeah. But it was kind of like that notion going back to Urban Outlaw was like, I put myself out on the line, no different than Magnus puts his self out on the line. And that maybe was some of the parallels of the filmmaking was the risk of the filmmaker was equal to the guy putting himself out there. 
But, you know, I don't go to the casino, but I'll double down on myself. But then you have to follow through and deliver. And that film kind of encapsulates that. And everything from that 914 that's gifted that everybody goes, oh, it's amazing you got this car. I go, return on investment. Like, it's all part of absolutely that risk, right? I risked 50, 60 grand of my own money. I could have bought a 914 <laughs> 10 times over. Yeah, yeah. Right? But I put my own money in and said, I'm betting on myself. And I kind of still stand by that to anybody who goes, so how do I make it? It's like, it's an endurance game, this industry, right? And it's a series of sprints and failures in this endurance run, but you've got to be prepared to risk it. Yeah, I, <clears throat> I, couldn't, I couldn't agree with you more. And I think that um, you know, clearly it's all paid off in terms of the, the risk and the reward, but also kind of the, the passion and the vision that you've had and some of the pieces that you've produced is just so clear and apparent when I've gone through and you know, I spent kind of last weekend just going through some of your work and, and looking back at and, and watching again. I mean, for me, uh, obviously such a fascination with an enjoyment on Urban Outlaw, but then also with Kaz, like, you know, going back through that too, for me, uh, having such a close tie to kind of, so a lot of the Japanese manufacturers and kind of growing up loving Japanese cars and being so immersed in Japanese culture too, I found it super fascinating to look back at, at Kaz and think like as a filmmaker, what was it like to have him in front of a camera at any point in time? He's got this crazy stoic you know, presence from what we see on camera at least and the way that he describes things with such texture and emotion and passion and the way that he's you know, he just seems to see things differently than a lot of people. I was really curious, you know, outside of the Magnus world, because I know that's a lot of what, you know, a lot of people will talk to you about. With Kaz, to me, found it very interesting with him as well. Like, what was it like to work with him? And, and, and what did you, what did you like, glean from him in, in all the time you spent shooting that film? Right. So first of all, even to this day, I can't believe they bought it. <laughs> and by that, I mean... You know, when they, the marketers, and I give credit to Ken because he was brave and the benefit of being brave, he walked all the way to the end of the tightrope and got mm -hmm. to the other side. Mm -hmm. Like he didn't, he didn't stop halfway and go. Eh. Yeah. There were moments along the way where it was like, but I was like, dude, we're already out here. Yeah. Let's keep going. And I've heard that he's a, he can be a pretty wild man. Well, Kazanori was separate from that. So Kazanori obviously had to sign off on all of it, but... You know, for, for Ken and the, we'll call it ground level guys who were selling the game, they just wanted to like, hurrah, 15 years, this is the best game right. ever. And like it sold 70 million units at the time. Like, exactly. It's a huge game yeah. and it's changed gaming. Yeah, they're and like, it, and then get us to GT Academy, the payoff of racing. Yeah. Know, like, I mean, simulator. It's, it's unbelievable what that game does as you go down the path and you uh -huh. discover it all. But they really wanted to, Embrace the 15-year history. And because Paul and I work in advertising in the traditional sense, when we were there, we were like, dude, I can do that in 30 seconds. <laughs> 60 right. if I want to stretch it out. Mm -hmm. And so there is a sequence in the first 10 minutes of the film that intentionally shows them, like, no, in 60 seconds, we did the entire history of the game. Boom. But we tried to explain to them that the game is irrelevant. What what is interesting is that all roads lead back to Rome, and Rome is Casanori. Because mm -hmm. here's a guy who, you know, five years leading up to the launch of the game, and then the 15 years of the game, has dedicated 20 years of his life plus to one 
pursuit, which is bettering a video game. And so he's either absolutely insane or a genius. <laughs> yeah. And then as we were doing research, I kind of just felt like if we could tap into his passion and the artistry of his craft, we could transcend the kind of businessman and move into, let's call it the poet. And the reason why I say that is that like, if you look at Japanese, you know, stories and art and pastry and floral designs, like there's a lot of poetry mm -hmm. in what's going on. Mm -hmm. And the poetry is in the minutia and the details and that game's all about the minutia and details. So the idea was, well, how do we tap into it? So the treatment that we put forward was like, yes, we're going to talk about GT Academy. Yes, we're going to talk about the, the physics engines of the game. Yes, we're going to talk about go-karting and racing and Kazunori as a race car driver. But if we're going to talk about him as a designer and a visionary, then we have to move into that artist world. And so that was part of the reason why we brought in artists from different fields. It was really cool, yeah. But that was two-tiered. Again, it was the notion of like, I want, you know, it drove Paul nuts because I kept using it as a reference, but it's like, I want that little old lady grandmother from <laughs> Pasadena, California to watch this movie on Hulu and go, oh, I'm going to buy this game for my grandkids <laughs> because she was so taken by it. And I've had people who are like, I don't care about gaming whatsoever, mm -hmm. go, I want to try this game because it's not violent, it's interesting. And look, professional race car drivers are using it and I'm into cars I want to explore. And, you know, that was kind of the goal. It was like we knew we could speak to the converted easily and show them how awesome the game is and they'd be in. But how did you speak to the people who weren't? And how did you get away from the games and the cars for a bit? Well, call it an eye wash. It's no different than when you're in the edit room or in a color grade or you're dealing in a print shoot or photography. Every once in a while, you got to leave the room, recalibrate your eyes and come in with fresh eyes. Mm -hmm. For us, it was as a viewer, going to this guy talking about origami and understanding that Okay, the concepts of origami, which are hundreds of years old and Japanese, are also how airbags work, right? Because it folds up in an origami yeah. form. And he even wow. talks about it in the film and that when it explodes, it's using the principles of origami to expand. No and we're kidding. like, oh, wow. wow, we can find these dots, right? Like mm -hmm. the surfboard guy who's designing surfboards, he's using a CNC machine and he's using 3D scanning well, it's the same 3D scanning they're using to scan the race car tracks, but he's building something that's three-dimensional and modular, and they're building something that's fiction, right? And so I was like, oh, we can connect the dots and we can find it. And so we were looking for these interesting people that existed in the cities that we knew we were shooting that happened to be available. Some of it didn't work out and ended up on the editing room floor. I mean, there was a fascinating guy who was a Japanese native, lived in Tokyo, went to law school, went to the States, was like, I don't want to have anything to do with my heritage and my parents and all the rest. And then somewhere along his law career in his 30s went, oh, I'm going back home, went back home and took over the family business. Family business was a pastry chef and not just a pastry chef, 14 generations of pastry chef to the emperor. No kidding. And the level of detail and artistry in these little pastries and the work 
And we found a parallel to what he was doing and what Kazunori was doing and talking about, you know, detail and Japanese culture and all the rest, but it just didn't fit the energy of the film. So it's, that ended up on the editing room floor, but it was a great little piece. But so some stuff, you know, we had guys who did like light design and installation pieces in Japan. And again, it didn't fit. Mm-hmm. And at a certain point you have to have respect to the viewer, not just put stuff in there because you think it's cool and go, mm-hmm. oh, it's a little left field. But you know, the, the industrial sculptor in San Francisco who was taking down parts of a bridge and building all these installation pieces, her art school was what was interesting. Her art school, similar to my video gaming room, was the back of the family station wagon on road trips across America, drawing and doing arts and crafts and stuff like that. And that led her to it, but her connection was completely rooted in the car. And that drove her to welding and it drove her to industrial arts and all the rest. And so it was just speaking to the freedom that the car gave and the connection of the car. And, you know, it's more than just going to a racetrack. I mean, yeah, it takes you from A to B, but our whole world is designed around the car. Yeah, absolutely. And so we were just trying to find these things that would make that film elevated and not just, you know, on a baseline, hey, this is about the game. Because we felt that from a branded content standpoint, and because you work in advertising, and I still stand by this, I think from a branded content standpoint, there's two ways of doing things. You can hide who is funding the film and try to cheat the audience and then sell something. And it rarely works, but people yeah. are afraid to do it the other way. Everybody's the other way, pretty, pretty wise to it now. They're wise to it, but they're still doing it. Yeah. The other way yeah. to do it is to embrace the 40s and 50s soap opera, which is, this is brought to you by Tide. And you go, okay, so this film is brought to me by Gran Turismo GT6. It's not going to be a piece about Casanori and why he got divorced and now has another <laughs> wife. It's yeah. not 60 Minutes. We know yeah. it's brought to you by PlayStation. Mm-hmm. So the point of view is not going to be one that is, you know, contrary to the end goal. But if on the outside it goes, hey, brought to you by PlayStation, or in your case, brought to you by Subaru, or brought to you by Porsche, and then it entertains you. Nice. No old bar, just, you know, it's out there, yeah. it's, just, it's explicit, you know. Right. Done. But, but then you're entertained. The net takeaway is, well, fuck, who else would have paid for it? Right. My, I got my entertainment value out of it. I got something that I might have learned out of it. I feel like there's some value in it. And so I didn't feel like somebody was trying to trick me right. as a result. And yeah. you go, yeah, it was pretty cool. They paid for it. But if they didn't pay for it, no one else would have. So have I accept that relationship with... Mm-hmm. I accept the relationship with the marketer and the brand because they were honest with me. Mm-hmm. And that's really mm-hmm. what I was trying to prove with Honda. You knew it was Honda. It was about the Honda Indy. There was no question. It was the last year of the Honda engine running in all the cars. We said it throughout and throughout. And everybody talked about how awesome Honda was and reliable and racing. But it still took you behind the scenes. And the only way I describe it is you got to sit at the king's table with the inner circle and learn about what it was like to race on a street track in Toronto mm-hmm. in the middle of the summer during the Honda Indy. Great. 
Kazunori, you got to sit with him and his closest guys in a bar having drinks, shooting the shit, and get an insight into what motivated him to drive him. And look, to be quite honest, like his entire team thought we were out of our minds. We took him into a forest and he's walking through it. But to him, he was like, this brought me back to my childhood. And he was blown away by nature and the trees and right. all of that. And it was like, right, we're all human. He was like picking mushrooms off <laughs> of the <laughs> It was like, yeah, it was we were crazy. just like, wow, we're making the craziest art film ever. <laughs> but he embraced it. And so working with him was interesting. He had a lot of respect for what I was doing. And he was smart enough to understand it. And he trusted me. And he also That's knew huge. that I was giving him the forum to say what he needed to say. In exchange, he would give me what I wanted him to dance around in his own words. And there were still translators involved and layers and all that. Yeah. But you know what? Like, I, I got to be honest. That two brands that I've worked with, and this is in no way an attack on anyone else or Slack. This was just, it blew my mind, absolutely blew my mind. And it's a reflection of the people and how the relationships that have been developed proved to have weight. When my wife did pass away at the funeral home, when we were in that kind of sequestered room before going out to join everybody who was at the funeral, there was a bouquet of some like, 50 white roses on the table and the funeral director was like oh this is for you this was sent to the funeral home I was like oh okay I picked up the card opened it up and it was condolences from Kazanori no signed by hand and the PlayStation team wow and I was just like that's fucked up because I haven't spoken to the man in two years and the last time I was in Japan we tried to meet up but our schedules didn't work because I was doing this Air Canada thing and we were there for 24 hours kind of thing. Holy but shit. I was completely blown away by it. Mm-hmm. And it, it, what it said to me was that that experience and that film and the trust that was created transcended doing a job and there was a human connection. And the fact that, I mean, it's so Japanese, but the fact that it was there at the funeral home and I was taking it home with me. It's epic. And then the next day, ding dong. Door opens, Porsche USA, and the entire agency send, you know, bouquet. One was from the agency, and one was from Porsche USA, and then another one from Porsche Germany. I was like, wow, that's crazy. And of course, you're moved by it, you're blown away, but there's also an element of like, wow, you know, there's a, a point of kind of recognition for your craft that is stated in that action that you're respected. And you're also like, you know, my wife built my career. Like she and I did it together. And so that recognition that they're giving is something we had earned together. And so in that in itself was a huge kind of like achievement. As strange as it sounds, those flowers showing up was like, yeah, we built this shit. Right. And so it, as crazy as it is, it's like, you know, that's my takeaway of these films. These films are, we're putting our lives into it and time and people are receiving and re- reacting positively to it. But the people who are behind it are also appreciative of it. And there's a lot of risk. Like that film, like the Casanova film, like when we screened it, they made us fly down to LA. 
we went to Sony Studios to screen in a screening room. So it might as well have been a fucking <laughs> Hollywood feature, right? And yeah. Ten Japanese dudes from Japan who had flown in, a couple of Japanese guys, local, and one Caucasian marketing guy. And I fully went into autopilot. I was like, I've been here before. I know what I'm doing. I pulled out their fucking creative brief and I reread their brief to them. Awesome. As if it was like an ad, right? Like mm -hmm. to the client, like, mm -hmm. this is what you wanted. This is what you asked for. We've achieved these things, but right. Because yeah. I was just looking at these guys going, <laughs> they're all going to Harry Carry when they watch this film. Like, what's going on? And they watched so it and they were like, okay, thank you very much. Leave. And then they did their dialogue and then they we sat out in the hall paul and i like mm -hmm. in this room for like an hour then they brought us in and said we have a few changes but overall we think it's fantastic thank you and then we all went out for dinner and got fucking hammered of course you <laughs> you know? like, this is this is the way to do it <laughs> right and so you know these are their crazy life adventures and you know you know it's, i love it yeah so that's kind of kaznori and that I, film i think it's uh yeah it, it's 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 special for me having you here and hearing about all of this too, just because of I think the magnitude of influence that I, I know that you you understand that you've had in terms of some of the films that you've made and kind of what you've been doing in the automotive industry and I think that the influence that it's had on so many people, you know, myself included, and a lot of people that I, I know very dearly. But you know, I think a lot of us owe you and your craft and your you know your lifetime and your commitment to doing this a lot of thanks. And um, you know, that's um, that's something that I think the whole I'm hoping that the bucket seat community will really get behind. Um, it's it's been amazing to be able to have you here and hear you explain all these stories kind of firsthand. And um, I think at that point. Um, I'm going to leave it because I feel like we've really covered some good stuff tonight. Um, and um, I'm going to leave it with, um, you know, that's been the episode 18 of the Bucket Seat Podcast uh, with Tamir. Thank you so much for being on the show. Um, for me, make sure you, uh, you know, you subscribe and follow. You can find us at the Bucket Seat just about anywhere on Twitter and on Instagram and on Facebook and all those great places. But um, Tamir, is there any shout outs that you want to do? You can follow you on Instagram. You've got a great Instagram handle as well. Yeah, I mean, yeah, follow me on Instagram, and that's just uh, Tamir Moskvich at Instagram, so yeah. easy to find. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, I always say this, and it comes down to, I've been fortunate enough to work with great crew, cinematographers, editor, partner, Paul Prue, working on some other stuff together, you know, the sound team and audio house behind some of these projects. Like, it's not one person, right. and right. the one thing I will leave off with is... You know, it doesn't matter what field you're in, the margins are getting smaller, budgets are getting tighter, and the one thing that's happening is apprenticeship is disappearing. <laughs> and if we want our crafts and our industries to be healthy and succeed, take that phone call from that kid around the corner who goes, hey man, I liked your film, or oh, I like that car, or hey, how do I get into advertising? It's five minutes, and if you have no interest in benefiting from it, just being kind and answering it, could change someone's life. So I think that the mentorship needs to keep happening. It's very admirable. I couldn't agree more. Uh, that's amazing. Uh, well, listen, Tamir, thank you so much for being here. Uh, I hope to have you back. I feel like I, I, you know, I have about like 30 questions on here. I feel like we could do another four episodes on, which would be sure. awesome to do. And uh, as I continue doing this, uh, I do hope you'll return. Yeah, I mean, let's see what the next film is. <laughs> awesome. All right, thanks so much, Tamir. All right, cheers.